The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. But we're going to be in John 4 this morning, uh, continuing our series entitled, This is What We Do. This is what we do as a church. So we began 2018 now with a series kind of recalibrating who we are as a church and why we do what we do the way we do it. You know, is there a method to the madness? Is there a reason for the things that we emphasize? And so, uh, so far we've seen that we're a vertical church on one mission, right? We're a vertical church, meaning we are uh, about God's glory on one mission, which is the Great Commission, right? We were here last week, we looked at Matthew 28, and so uh, taking those two things really does give us the language for our mission statement as a church, which is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so we want to be a people uh, who are honoring the Lord in that way. And so how we do that then, how we fulfill the Great Commission, and what brings God's glory down, what God promises to bless, where He promises to show up and be moving among us is where we get our four pillars then. Are you familiar with those, the four pillars? We've referenced them. If you've been to step one, you've seen them. They're also on the four banners to my right and to my left here. These are the four things which we say our church stands upon. These are the four pillars which hold the roof up, but these are the things which we are committed to because these are the things where Jesus promises to show up. Jesus, he uses these things through his spirit to transform us. And isn't this what we really want? Isn't it what we want is that we want Christ to be near and present. Isn't that what we want in our life? Maybe not. Maybe you're like thinking, well, I don't know. I've never thought of it that way. I have some objections. Maybe it's like I'm pretty satisfied with my life. Maybe I've never thought of it in those terms. You know, maybe you've, or you think in terms of, well, you know, Jesus and I, we have an understanding. You know, he, he kind of stays in his realm. I stay in my realm, but, you know, we don't really, uh, we, we've got an understanding here. Maybe you're uh, like, well, you know what, Jesus, he's there when I need something, but that's, that's, that's about all. Then I tap into that, but. You know, or maybe you're just like, oh, I've been getting along okay without him, so I don't, maybe, maybe I need a little convincing. Do I really want this? Do I really want the life like the psalmist said in Psalm 42, that as the deer pants for living or flowing streams, rather my so pants my soul for you, O God? Does your soul pant for the Lord? Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you know what? Jesus near and present, that sounds great, but I'm not sure what that looks like. How are we truly satisfied in who Jesus is? Well, that's our passage this morning. So turn to John 4, if you will. John 4, it's the, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar with it. Not sure what page it's on today, but uh, it's there. John was a disciple of Jesus, meaning he was one of his inner uh, group. He was one of the guys that wrote a, a, a gospel. He also wrote three letters and the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. And so, unlike uh, maybe some of the other authors, the human authors of the scriptures, here uh, John is very accomplished because he got published with three different genres of literature which is a very hard thing to do, right, as an author. Um, he wrote this gospel, some letters, and uh, wrote the book of Revelation. But he's probably most famous for uh, the most famous uh, verse in the Bible, which is John 3, 16. We all pretty familiar with that? 
Anyone brave enough to quote it right now? Anyone? Anyone want to preach? Anyone got John 3.16? Any kids in the house got it? Know it? Yeah? Can you say it? Yes. Yeah, you got it. Boom, everyone. All right, give her a hand. Great. Bravery right there. Bravery right there. Um, that's right. It's the most famous verse. And so that's John 3. Now we're in John 4. Pretty uh, astute of me, huh? But it's a long chapter here, uh, John 4. And so this morning, as we go through it, we're just going to walk through it together and uh, I'll make some observations, some applications and things as we go. So if you have your notes, you can uh, follow along. The points will be kind of the, uh, the section breaks in the story here. So you ready for it? You ready? Let's get into it. It begins here. The story begins with the opportunity. So look here at John 4, verse 1. It's, it picks up like this. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, those were religious dudes, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So something's happened. Jesus knows the Pharisees have heard this, that Jesus is doing a lot of ministry. The Pharisees are hot on his tail. And so he leaves Judea, which is kind of the central part of the nation of Israel, still is kind of considered that in those days. It's like the area around uh, Jerusalem. And then the region of Galilee is the north, okay? It's the, the beautiful part of the, of, of the of the nation. And so, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria is the region in between it, okay? And so, it's kind of like if we're here and we had to make our way to Dallas, we have to go through Austin, yeah, or Waco, somewhere right there, right? And I was thinking when when I was, just in my mind, I was like, all right, when you travel that way, my wife wants to go see her sister who's in Dallas, and so she's trying to time like when she leaves because just knowing like traffic in between this uh, uh, up and down the I-35 corridor, particularly through Austin, like you have to like, like schedule your life so you don't get stuck there for an inordinate amount of time or pay the 10 or $11 in tolls to go around the city, right? And so that's kind of the thing. And you don't really want, uh, they didn't really get along as we'll see here. So Jesus is, mo- is traveling to the north. Pick it up back in verse five here. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. I mean, it was about lunchtime most likely. So they, how they told time was basically from sunrise and so about six hours after that was about uh, lunchtime most likely. There's some historical context here. It gives us the region. Uh, it's referring to when uh, uh, Jacob bought this land from the sons of Hamor in Genesis 33, and then he sold it to his son Joseph in Genesis 48. And so we're in that region. They're coming through here. But what is, apart from all the specific details in here, what is almost subtle but is very important, and the reason why we would say that this is the opportunity is because of verse 4 there, where he had to pass through Samaria. 
Now, there's a lot of speculation on this. Of course, it was the most logical route for him to uh, get from point A to point B. Uh, there's some you know, debate that uh, the Jewish people, as we'll see here in the next section, they don't like them, so they would very intentionally go around uh, this so they would avoid the, the Samaritan people. But, but beyond all of that, what you have to see here, and I think the point is, is that there is a divine opportunity in this very encounter. We don't know who he's going to meet. We don't know why, but we see here that Jesus had to go through this region for more reasons than just convenience sake. Jesus is going through here very intentionally. And this is a theme throughout the book of John. I would encourage you to read it if you haven't, but what you will notice in John is that Jesus is very calculated in all of his moves. Jesus is not just blundering through his earthly life, but he is very strategic in the places that he goes, the ministry that he does, and the places that he teaches. You will see repeatedly in this book that Jesus, knowing his hour had not come, didn't do something. Or he will, or it'll say, Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen, then did something else. And you will see, at the, especially at the beginning of chapters, you will see this type of language, that Jesus is very strategic. He knows exactly what is going to happen. He knows exactly what he is going to do. And he, he is on, a man on a mission, and he is very uh, directly, proactively carrying out that mission. This is no different. This is no different. This is early on in Jesus' ministry, and he has, at this point, really only had ministry to the Jewish people, and now he has to go to these Samaritan people. Here is the opportunity. But it continues on here with the offer. Look here at verse 7. This next section continues with the offer. He's at this well, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, right there, it gives us uh, some insight into the racial tensions of uh, these two groups of people. See, this was a social taboo thing for more reasons than one, not just the race thing, but also gender. Men and women didn't really talk to one another in this case, and, 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 and now it is just made even worse by the fact that she is a Samaritan and he is a Jew. She... she is commenting on this. She, she's like, what are, why, are you, why are you talking to me? And so what you, what you have to know here, that just maybe some of the history, the context will give you uh, uh, some clues into this, is that in the Old Testament, okay, after uh, King Solomon was king, you had King David and then King Solomon, and then the nation of Israel split into two nations, right? You had the South Israel and you had the North, uh, or the, the North Israel and the South Judea. And, and throughout the course of time, they were, uh, they, they were taken captive and all those things. But the Northern tribe, they set up a new capital outside of Jerusalem, and they also largely abandoned the Old Testament. And at this point, they only believed that the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, were holy scriptures. So they only believed that these were authoritative. So they didn't recognize David as king or any of those. They just saw these first five books 
uh, added to the fact was also that they begin to uh, intermarry and marry people from other uh, religions and, and other nations and things. And so, this, uh, their uh, then religion was obviously was intermixed and all this stuff. And so, it wasn't a true Jewish religion. So, of course, the Jews who believed in the whole Old Testament, who... Uh, who recognized David as the, uh, from whom the Messianic king would come from, there was stuff going on here, racial tensions, uh, spiritual tension, you know, religious tension, all of these things, and it just made for some very bad blood. That's why the Jewish people would go and avoid it, why they didn't want to have any sort of interaction with them. But what takes place, even in the midst of all of this tension, and in the midst of all of these things here, is a fascinating exchange in which Jesus takes advantage of a teachable moment. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Basically, what he's saying is that if you had known who you were talking to, you, wouldn't have, you would have said to me, can I have the water that you have to give? Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, this, basically, you're absurd that you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then her wheels begin to spin. She begins to make connections. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is the master of the teachable moment, isn't he? Jesus is, is coming here at the well. He sees a, a woman who is in need, and he, she is going there to look to quench her thirst. And Jesus, seeing beyond that, uh, points out something that is even greater need. It's a, it, Jesus is going for the heart here, offering her true satisfaction. And so what is he offering her here? In the fact of living water, what is Jesus offering this woman? Himself, right? Salvation. He's offering him, him, himself. He's saying, here, I am. I am the one who can truly satisfy this. I have the gift of eternal life. I have the gift of forgiveness. Uh, what I have will truly satisfy and so he begins to make this offer in a, a way, seeing this teachable moment, a woman coming to satisfy a, a very real need, the thirst that she has, and points out in her life, you have something even deeper. But look at this next section here. He makes the offer, then he points out the obstacle. And she takes him up. She says, oh, yes, I want this water. Give me this water. But in verse 16 here, we see an obstacle. Follow along here where Jesus continues. He said, Jesus said, for go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one now you, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, isn't that an interesting response, right? And it's almost like here Jesus is pointing out the obstacle that, no, your sin has actually separated you uh, from this. That here I've made this offer, here it is, and he just points out very uh, astutely in, in a way that only Jesus can do. Here he's, he points out, well, there's kind of this scandal, there's this thing going on that is keeping you from taking this offer. And it almost, doesn't it seem like in verse 19 she's like changing the topic? Did you get that? As I was first reading, it's like, here we have this. He's pointing this out. There's no, like, repentance. She's like, no, you're not right. Okay, well, what do I do? He doesn't tell her anything. Her response is just to, like, well, you say that we're supposed to worship here. Is she, is she being elusive? You get the sense there? Like, what? No, she's rightfully made the connection that our lives are meant to worship the Lord and that our sin keeps us from worship. And so she sees the offer. She knows that there's an obstacle here. I think she's embraced it, but now she's like, well, how do I even worship? This is what I've been taught my whole life. More than likely, she hasn't been to worship in a long time anyways. I mean, we don't know that for sure. She obviously knows the place, but ultimately she's missing the point. Because it's not where we worship. It's not about traditions or, or uh, preferences. It's not about those things. But look at what worship is about. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Isn't this a fascinating section of Scripture? You find it fascinating like, like I do? I mean, I, I, I just think that where this starts and where Jesus takes this is, is really just the beauty of the distance that the gospel takes us. Here he's pointing out the obstacle, and within the course of 10 verses in this exchange here, they make the connection that life is about worship, life is about knowing Jesus, and that he is the one that made the way for this, that he is the Christ, he is the Savior. And so even though there's an obstacle, she has recognized it, and he in that moment then transforms all, that, all the misconceptions that she had about worship, not being about location, it's not about tradition, those things are us-focused, but it's rather father-seeking. It's, it's him seeking out people, it's Jesus finding them, it's about worshipers, true worshipers, worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
And so here's, here's a woman again that we said that maybe hasn't been in, in worship in a, in a long time, but she knows some things about it. But what's kept her from worship? It's probably her guilt, right? Number one reason why people stay out of church or stay away from church and small group for long periods of time is oftentimes it's guilt. It's guilt uh, uh, over the things, the way that they're living their life or how uh, it, just the, the shame or something that they feel about decisions that they have made. That's the, really the number one reason, more so than sickness or illness or anything like that. But it's what keeps us out. And so she, very astutely, by, I would say, the help of the Holy Spirit, is making the connection that it's a worship problem. And now Jesus teaches her how to worship. It's not about these things, but it is about spirit and in truth. And this is, this is here for us. This is the, the balance that we seek to have every week in worship. It's not about a style. It's not about a preference. It's not even about a location or where we are. But it's about the things that we sing, the true things that we sing about who God is. We sing to God about God, things that are, are true and right, that are theologically uh, correct and biblically true. But we sing them in a way that moves us, that affects our entire being, not just singing them monotonously that they just like kind of pass over our head. But we're also not here for just the show and like outward expressions, are we? We're here to sing, to sing things that are true and right, and those are the things that move us into true worship, true worshipers, because we are worshiping the one that we know is what? Is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the Savior. You see his claim here? She's saying, yeah, I, I know that he's coming, Right? And then Jesus, who's sitting right before, says, I mean, not me, don't, I'm not the Savior. I shouldn't point at me. Jesus is pointing at himself. I'm not. But this is the truth. This is the truth, and there is an obstacle to it. But look at the overflow then. Look at where it goes next. He makes this claim. He points out the obstacle. Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. Remember where they went? They went into town, right? They came to this well. They went in to look for food, and now the disciples had come back. The woman leaves, right? Here, let's read it. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So disciples, they come with the food, the woman leaves. Uh, the town is now coming in this commotion. They hear this woman has been uh, transformed. She's seen something. She's telling them. And so they are now coming. And Jesus, again, sees a teachable moment, this time now with his disciples. Keep going, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What? <laughs> First water that we don't know about, now food that we don't know about. Verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? It's like, did someone come when, while we were gone and give him something to eat? I mean, it's a legitimate question, right? But then Jesus, the uh, master of the teachable moment, 
seized the opportunity, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." Here now is the overflow of Jesus' uh, encounter, this offer of satisfaction, the obstacle to the satisfaction, now this overflow in it, saying that they, they're coming and, and these people are now coming and, and he's saying, they're saying, Jesus, you got to eat. And he's saying, you know what? I don't have to eat because I'm satisfied just doing the work that God has given me to do. Jesus is saying, my fulfillment, my satisfaction comes by doing what I was sent to do, what I had to do, right? Do you see that? He's saying, I am satisfied in this. I, yes, you know, is he, does he need to eat? Well, of course he needs to eat. He's a human being. But his satisfaction comes from doing the work that God has sent him to do. His mission, to be the Savior of the world. Our mission, to make disciples of the Savior of the world. That's the overflow here. That's the work that we, that we are to do. And he's saying, don't, don't hesitate. Don't, don't wait for another day. Don't wait. Well, in four months, the harvest will be ready. He's saying, no, others have been doing the work. And now look here, the field is ripe for the harvest. And so put yourself in the scene here. Jesus has just, he's done a little of the work. He's uh, had this uh, uh, encounter with this woman. Now she's come and went back to the city. Now lots of people are coming. His disciples are, are here now with him him, and as the people are coming, he's saying, look, there's the field. Here's people that are coming that are eager to hear. And so a very tangible expression of this here, people are coming. Just lift your eyes and see what is right around you. And tell others, tell them, lift your eyes, get your eyes off yourself, and tell them about this Messiah. Tell them about myself. Do you see the outcome? How does this end? Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman was transformed by Jesus. She tells the town and what's the result? Revival. You see, what's the result? Revival. Many more believe. They, they seek Jesus. They ask him to stay and even more believe that this is indeed the Savior of the world. He begins to preach. He begins to, to tell. He begins to offer this living water, this satisfaction that only he can give in living a life on mission, living a life with purpose. And in essence, saying and proclaiming for us, and what this whole chapter is all about, is that only Jesus truly satisfies. We have our outcome, 
We see that many believe, but what is the point of this entire chapter, apart from the fact that Jesus is the Savior, He's the Christ, He's the Messiah, it's said in multiple different ways and in all the different contexts that we have it here, but in essence, what is the main point of this interaction here of Jesus coming to this well, of going to the Samaritan people, and to tell us today is that only Jesus truly satisfies Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Look, Jesus has already dashed to pieces that water won't satisfy. Even relationships, human relationships don't ultimately satisfy. Even food won't. Are they good? Yes. Are they necessary? Yes. But they fail, they spoil, they run out, but Jesus does not. Jesus gives us satisfaction both here on the earth in giving us a purpose in which to live, a mission in which to engage in, but also a satisfaction that is eternal, a satisfaction that will not run out. And this, beloved, this this church is why our pillars are so important. We bring it back here full circle here, seeing the gospel, seeing that Jesus and in Jesus alone is our Savior. But this is, the, through these pillars, is how we connect to the Lord as a church and as a people. See, just like living water that will never run out, so too our prayer, our unceasing prayers are always, uh, uh, Jesus is always accessible. Jesus is always available to us. We have this unhindered access to the Lord through prayer. It's why we worship unashamed in spirit and in truth, because we can come before the Lord guilt-free. We don't have to avoid Him. We don't have to look for satisfaction and fulfillment in all the wrong places, in all the uh, wrong relationships, but we can come to the Lord unashamed in our worship, knowing that we can worship Him in spirit and in truth, guilt-free. That's why we have so much purpose and fulfillment in our life when we are engaged in the mission, right? When we are unafraid, when our witness, when we are lifting our eyes up, seeing that the fields of New Braunfels are ripe for the harvest, that the people that are moving here, the people that you work with, those that live in your neighborhood, that the field is ripe for the harvest and God is giving you opportunity to engage in the mission. We see people believe when we preach unapologetically, when we, have, when we proclaim the authority of God's Word without apology, when we open the book and we show Jesus, many believe at His Word. It's not my words, it's not a preacher's words, it's God's Word. And so we open the book and we let it out. This is why we engage in these. Do you believe that? Do you believe that only Jesus truly satisfies because this is what we do. This is what we do as a church because of that. And when we begin to get cued with novelty or stuck in tradition or those things, that, well, then we, when we really lose what it's all about. And there's a warning. <laughs> Amber alert. God, whatever that situation is, be near. Restore to the family that person who's lost. In Christ's name. But beloved, this is what we do. 
These are the things that we engage in because we want Jesus to be near and present. And when we lose that, when we abandon these things, when we abandon uh, what, the, uh, what it's all about, namely Christ, when we give way to just kind of the horizontal fads, those things, then we miss the point of a deep, abiding, growing faith in Jesus, which is what we want, isn't it? Which is what we want, which is what we need, and it is where we find true satisfaction in Christ alone. Let's pray.